from MPB Think Radio, this is Southern Remedy. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at UMMC. Well, Christmas is upon us, that's right. Only a few more days until Christmas, less than a week. And we want to give you an opportunity to ask any questions you might have about the health of yourself or someone in your family. Maybe it's just someone you know or something you've been thinking about. This is the time for you to call in. Uh, we might even, uh, you know, pass along a little bit of information to Santa if you'd like for us to do that also. So uh, just keep that in mind. The number to call today if you have a question is one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Or you can always send an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. This is Southern Remedy from MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. This is Southern Remedy with Dr. Jimmy Stewart on MPB Think Radio. To take part in today's show with your questions or comments, call 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. Or you can email the show remedy at mpbonline.org. And now, Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. Good morning. This is Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at UMMC. And welcome to the holiday season. That's right. Tis the season to call in to Southern Remedy. The number to reach us this morning is one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one 672 7464 You can always send an email to remedy at mpbonline.com. For anybody who might be new out there, maybe you just happened upon the program, this is a chance for you to call in and ask an actual physician, an actual doctor, a question about your health. That's right. We try to to serve one another about that. And by serve one another, I mean that um, uh, as people call in, usually somebody else has something similar uh, who's listening. So we like to share that information with our listeners. And i uh, going to go to Mike right off the bat this morning from Cleveland. Good morning, Mike. We're having a little bit of problems. Can I tell you what? We're going to work on it. Uh, I think Mike had a, had a question about canceling a drug program. Uh, but if we can't reach him, I'll try to touch on that. In the meantime, got a couple of emails here. We love to get emails in, on Southern Remedy. It's a great way to uh, ask us questions. Sometimes I know during the hour as we're broadcasting, you might not uh, can remember a question and uh, might have uh, have it come up later on that you want to email it. So you can always do that, and we try to answer these online. Uh, excuse me, on the air or uh, offline uh, by email. First one comes from William. I have severe toenail fungus on both big toes. What's the best way to get rid of it? Toenail fungus, particularly in the South, just because we have such a warm, humid environment, uh, is a common thing. And generally, it uh, looks like your toenail is what we call in the doctor world dysmorphic. So it means that it is irregular in shape. It might be discolored. Uh, and it's at the actual nail itself. It almost looks like it's sort of shriveled up sometimes, uh, but it can be real subtle, too. And this is easy to get, uh, particularly as you get older. Nobody understands exactly why people get it, but you do get it. If your immune system is down for any reason, uh, if you're being treated for any kind of um, um, chronic disease, or if you've got diabetes in particular, can make you more susceptible to getting that. Now, it's hard to get rid of, and there's lots of different things you can use. Now, if you had, if William had said, you know, I think I have ringworm, which is another type of fungus on my skin, on my body, uh, like on my arms or his uh, chest, I would say go to your local pharmacist, to your local pharmacy, and get some over-the-counter antifungal medication. Uh, Lamacil is one, or terpenophene is, an, is one that uh, you can use topically. However, if you're talking about fungus that is set up shop in your toenails, fingernails, or hair follicles, um, and kids get get this, uh, we call it tinea capitis, so it's ringworm, but it's in the scalp, um, that is something that you need to treat with medication orally. So either a pill or if, you, if you're a child, 
There's a liquid medication that you can take for this. So that is a prescription. And that's about the only way to get rid of it. Now, I don't know if William has done this beforehand. It takes a long time. I usually tell patients you're looking at a six to eight week treatment period. Um, it is important in some situations to get rid of that completely and then to make sure Dr. Deshazo used to talk about this on there all the time. So, you know, when you get out of the shower or the bathtub, uh, dry off those toes because what this fungus likes is wet environments. And, uh, if you just put on your socks wet, uh, it's just going to be wet for the rest of the day. Uh, all the topical stuff is not really going to work on toenail fungus. You really have to get one of those medications by mouth. So I would say go to your local um, um, physician or nurse practitioner and say, hey, I've got toenail fungus. What can I do about it? And they're probably going to give you some of that. But the, the topical stuff won't work on that. So thanks, William, for sharing that with us. And uh, hopefully you get rid of that. That'll be a Christmas present, getting rid of that toenail fungus. Although it probably would be more like a spring present by the time you get rid of it. You just have to keep uh, keep plodding in it. It can come back after you get rid of it, too. All right, well, I think we've got Mike back on the line from Cleveland. Good morning, Mike. Good morning. You got me now? We got you. Okay, good. Um, I've got this question. Um, I'm 76, going on 77. I don't take any meds. And a year ago, I thought I'd join one of those Part D programs and all that, just in case. But it seems to be a waste of money, and I just, uh, and since I'm getting so old, what does it seem worth it? If I'm healthy and I'm not taking meds, should I be paying those guys all that money for nothing? Yeah, that's a great question, and it's one that if you're in that age range uh, where you're, you've got Medicare, and then the Part D, which if you're not familiar with that, D really covers, the majority of what it covers is uh, is prescription drugs. Uh, there are many, many different plans. There are a ton of different plans out there, and each one of them has some pluses and minuses, and it depends on how many medications that you're currently taking uh, and what type of medications you're taking. And but I take none. Yeah, none, I would say. Here's the deal, Mike. So if you're 76, almost 77, uh, chances are, as you get older, something's going to happen, right? One way oh, or yeah. the other. Um, but you have been blessed so far to reach this age without you know any medications. Uh, you have to sort of take a risk benefit of not you know dropping that and saving you some money in your pocketbook. And then if something comes up from a Part D standpoint, at that point you'd have to re-enroll uh, uh, from a Part D. But if you're not taking anything, there's really no benefit to that. That's what I thought, but I thought I'd talk to somebody who knows a little bit more about it and treated a lot of older people. So uh. Yeah, yeah, that's what I would advise. If, if you were my patient, I would say, you know, if you're not taking medication, you're generally pretty healthy, you're active, you eat right, it doesn't look like you're going to get much in the next couple of years. Even if you, let's say you got hypertension in the next couple of, which if you're 77, you're unlikely to get hypertension uh, in, you know, at this point. But if you did, there's a lot of generic medications that would be cheaper to buy yourself, um, particularly if you get a 90-day supply. Same thing for some of the diabetes medications. Um, over the, you know, you could just pay for it yourself out of pocket, and that would be cheaper than a drug plan. So even yeah, sometimes if sometimes you get a better deal by paying in cash. Yeah, you got to you got to shop around. That's I tell uh, I tell all my patients, look, shop around, compare different pharmacies, ask your physician to you know if you've got some medications that you're taking out there, uh, make sure they're they're prescribing it in ninety day uh, supplies at a time if they can, because you can save some money. Th- that way also. So, Mike, I think I would, you know, sort of weigh that out. Uh, you know, ask your ask your physician, hey, what do I look like? I know you can't, you know, you don't have a crystal ball there, but what does it look like uh, as far as my health for the next 10 years or so? And what are the most likely things that are going to happen to me? And most of those, I think you could manage fairly well over the next couple of years, maybe save you some money. A lot of people have sort of like a health savings account too, to help pay for uh, things like that, but uh, that's what I would do. I mean, you're you're right. It's not cheap. Those plans do cost a lot of money, and you know everybody I think is familiar in that age range with the donut hole too. So even though they call it they um, they uh, cover a lot of uh, medications that you're taking, there's a time period when that runs out, and you have to make up the difference. So uh, yeah, it's a, it's an ugly business. So <laughs> and complex, <laughs> isn't it? Oh yes, terribly. <laughs> So I think I'll just disenroll and um, and go with that. That sounds great, Mike. 
appreciate your help, Doc. All right, sure. Anytime. Thanks for calling. Yeah, if you're if you're considering that, even if you're on a, a lot of medications, talk to your pharmacist. Have them run these things through uh, with different plans and see which one is best for you. Uh, because you you really have to, and I'm not talking about shopping around different pharmacies. I'm talking about the Medicare Part D plan. So make sure that you enlist the help of your pharmacist about what would be right, and they can they can put all those medications in there and compare them to see which one would you know would be the cheapest and the best one to cover the medications that you're taking. The other thing about these plans is they change formulators from time to time, and you may have to change. You know, medications, which is not always a bad thing. Sometimes it's sort of an apples to apples change, uh, but you have to to sort of play that game. It's not, you know, when I twenty some odd years ago, uh, when I went into medical school, uh, twenty plus now, um, you know, it's it's uh, it. You really have to. I did not go into medical school to learn all this, but it, unfortunately, it's something that we've all had to learn or had. The help of our nursing staff, of PAs, of pharmacists in our clinic now, it really takes an army of people to adequately do this for patients. And it's, it is incredibly complex. All of us would want a more simpler system uh, to, to work with, but uh, that's the one we have right now. So uh, good luck to you out there, not just to Mike, but all the rest of you if you're looking at uh, changing those plans. Make sure you shop around. Don't just take somebody else's word for it because they could have totally different things going on with them. So ask your pharmacist before you change your Medicare Part D plan. This is Southern Remedy. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, and you can reach us this morning at one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Going to take a short break. When we come back, plenty of time for your questions for you to call in and some more email. We'll be right back after this. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. This is Southern Remedy with Dr. Jimmy Stewart on MPB Think Radio. To take part in today's show with your questions or comments, call one 877 MPB ring. That's one 672 7464 Or you can email the show remedy at mpbonline.org. Welcome back to Southern Remedy. This is Dr. Jimmy, and uh, we're taking questions this morning about any kind of thing that you might have on your mind. Maybe it's something that your doctor told you, or maybe it's something you're frustrated about and you just want a solid answer. We're going to give that to you straight up this morning during this holiday season. The number to call if you have a question is one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Or you could always send an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. And speaking of emails, this one is from Heather. Uh, she says that um, she had a question about her four-year-old son. They have an appointment to see the pediatric hematologist slash oncologist, and that's someone who deals with uh, with pediatric patients that have either blood disorders or uh, possible cancer. Uh, so it's always a scary visit if your pediatrician is sending you there. Uh, but there's, there's, it doesn't always mean cancer. There's some other things that go on, like anemia, uh, that sometimes they'll, they'll uh, send you for that. So she has an appointment there. Uh, her child suffers from enlarged lymph nodes, and I'll explain what those are in just a second, and they just simply won't go away. They're in his neck region and clusters, uh, clusters of them on each side. So I'm anxious to see the doctor to hopefully get some answers as to why his lymph nodes just won't go down completely. I was told it could, it would, 
could possibly be a gluten allergy as he also has shiners and those are just dark circles underneath his eyes and has since he was a baby. I guess I'm just wondering if you could give me other insight as what it could be, what we could expect from an appointment, and if there are any tips you could give to make it easier when they draw his blood. It also seems uh, to have a sensitive inflammatory response system when he gets mosquito bites or something like that. His lymph nodes will flare up. So lymph nodes uh, are everywhere in your body. There's like all kinds of different places, but they, uh, they're they normal to have that, and they feel like little rubbery uh, lumps, and they can be very small, like the tip of your, of your finger, particularly in a smaller individual, but you can feel them underneath your neck, uh, in your armpits, and in the groin area, but they're uh, elsewhere, too. You can, you can find them all kinds of different places. Lymph nodes uh, have their main job is to make antibodies and they help with an immune response. So what happens is they filter things called lymph. Now, lymph is not like blood. It's this uh, fluid that's in and around uh, your cells in the body, and it has its own sort of pathways. If you want to think of it as roads that it travels on back up to lymph nodes and then eventually back into the bloodstream it dumps back in so what happens with lymph is it collects all these different things and brings it to these lymph nodes to sort of filter out and when they find something that they need to make antibodies for they have these different cool little cells and they're sort of antibody factories so they start making these antibodies against bacteria against viruses all kinds of stuff uh, now, everybody's immune system's a little bit different, and these lymph nodes, when they start making these antibodies, they get bigger. So everybody, when they, you know, it, and it's regional. So in, the, in other words, the ones from the neck, if they're presented with something, say you get a sore throat, they're going to drain that to those, those lymph nodes underneath the neck, and they're going to get bigger because what are they doing? They're increasing their activity and making all these inflammatory markers and antibodies to whatever's going on. And that's normal to do that. And generally, after the infection goes away, they go down. But it takes time. So they're still they're trying to protect your body against these things coming up again in the future. So they're still making these antibodies and other substances uh, weeks after that you have that. And that's okay. You don't need to normally do anything. Now, occasionally, you can have lymph nodes that get big and they feel a little differently, so they'll be a lot harder than that rubbery feel. Uh, if they persistently are enlarged, you will just want to be safe on the safe side that uh, it's not anything more serious like uh, cancer. So certain lymphomas, those are cancers of the, of the lymphatic system, uh, certain uh, leukemias will um, present that way. And leukemia is just a cancer of white blood cells. So uh, that's something to keep in mind. They're going to be looking for that uh, when you go to the doctor. They're, they're probably going to draw some blood. Uh, and if they're really concerned about those lymph nodes after they look at them and after they talk to you, they may even want a lymph node biopsy where they take one of those out. They would numb up the skin, maybe even you know put, put your child to sleep while they do that. Very, very benign uh, thing to do since it's right underneath the skin. And, and look at that underneath the microscope to make sure there's nothing further. I don't think this is gluten allergy. Now, you can have shiners underneath your eyes. I have them. Other kids have them. That's just an, an, uh, just routine allergies, and we have a lot in the South. Jackson's one of the worst places for allergens. Uh, so that doesn't necessarily go on. You know, it's not connected to the, to the lymph nodes, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't let that bother you. And for the appointment, they're just going to ask you what's been going on. When have you noticed that the lymph nodes are enlarged? And um, they're going to be experts at drawing blood because that's what they do. So, I, a four-year-old don't you you can't you can't reason with a four-year-old. I don't care who your four-year-old is. They just their brains are not connected just right. If they're you know advanced for their age, some people would say, no, no, no. I can reason with my four-year-old. You can bribe a four-year-old, but you not, can't necessarily reason with them. So talking them through that beforehand, I don't think is very helpful. I think you just wait and see what happens because you don't even know if they're going to get blood when you get there. Uh, distraction is probably the best thing, but it's just going to they're going to cry just for a little bit. Like I said, most of the uh, these are some of the best people at drawing blood in the hospital or in the clinic situation. So you should be in good hands there. 
Um, so it, some kids, like the mosquito question, you know, if they have a mosquito bite, the lymph nodes enlarge. Well, they're doing their job. That's what they're supposed to do. It's just when they're persistent, they stay enlarged. That's when you need a little bit of further information. And you, best case scenario, you go there and they say, hey, we think this is normal. We're just going to watch it for a while. Uh, and you go on about your business. So thanks, Heather, for that question. That's a lot, it's a common one, particularly for kids about lymph nodes. This is Southern Remedy, the number to call today. we got a wide open board. If you have any questions about your health care, about anything of your child, maybe it's your wife or yourself or your grandparent, you can call us with any age question at one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Or you can send an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. When they teach you in medical school all these different things, uh, they, they tell you this saying, and this goes way back to gross anatomy in the first year of medical school. They say, you know what? You read the textbook, right? So you read the textbook about what's normal, but then sometimes your patient doesn't read the textbook. And we would find all kinds of things. Uh, one of the first things that we found is that uh, different people have extra tendons and extra muscles in different places like palmaris longus, which is one of the uh, tendons uh, and and minor muscles uh, that helps control the wrist. Some people have two of these and not one, and it's uh, it's a fair number in the population. And it's amazing all the variation from one individual to another, and lymph nodes are just one of those things. So it can be all kinds of stuff that that you find in people. Same, same thing with medication. You know, some people are very frustrated when they say, you know what, this medication is just not working for me. It worked for my husband. It worked for my kids. It worked for my sister. Why is it working? Why is it not working for me? Well, it's because your body's different and uh, everybody's a little bit different. Uh, even within genetically identical twins, sometimes you can have differences, not as many. Uh, typically, they will they will be, you know, about the same, but uh, but you never know from one person to another. Number to call this morning is one eight seven seven MPB ring. That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Another email here from Rocky, and this is a common one this time of year, being the holiday season. Rocky says, uh, "I have generalized anxiety disorder and had panic attacks so bad this weekend that I literally got sick with fever. Most of my worries are overwork." And I'm overwhelmed with issues that I need to find solutions for. What advice would you give someone like me whose mind never stops racing? Thanks, Rocky, for sharing that. That's a that's a uh, I wouldn't say common, but it is uh, something that uh, that we commonly see in the clinic. Uh, and, and different situations can make it worse. Anxiety, you know, anybody can have anxiety about things. If you're younger and you have a test or you have a job interview, a little bit of, of anxiousness is normal for that uh, for that situation. We call that situational anxiety, and that's okay. Now, some people it will be paralyzing. You've probably the one that everybody, you know, sort of stereotypical one is somebody who has to speak in front of a large group of people. One time I was asked to speak at the National uh, American Academy of Pediatrics meeting in Boston, and it was about 3,000 people there in the audience that I had to speak for. And for me, as most of you know, don't don't mind speaking at all or uh, carrying on. This was a 10-minute uh, time slot, and they were very tight with that. So it's very uh, difficult to do that. And of course, I got a little anxious. Your heart rate increases, your palms get sweaty. Uh, some people uh, feel a tightness in their throat. Uh, everybody feels a little little something different. You can get sick with this. A lot of people will say, I don't understand. I mean, can this really make my blood pressure go up? Can this really affect my body this way? Sure it can. I mean, our bodies are hardwired together that when we feel anxiety, when our brain generates that emotional response, it certainly can downstream have a lot of effects. So some people have generalized anxiety disorder, which means it may be triggered by something like I've just described, or it can just come on you at any uh, time period without any kind of warning. So it can just totally just just knock you off your feet. And you can have panic attacks, too, to the point that it's incapacitating to continue doing what you're doing. Uh, and you certainly can get sick. Fever, that may be something else going on. Certainly your immune system can go down. Uh, why you're having a lot of those uh, anxiety, those anxious feelings. But it, when it's overwhelming to the point 
that it um, uh, is interfering with your daily work, with your daily activities. Maybe it's your relationships at home. Uh, you need to do something about it. So the first thing I would do, Rocky, is find you a good psychologist. I tend to avoid medication for anxiety uh, as much as I can. That's always a good thing. I don't know how old you are. If you're older, that's certainly something that that you want to avoid. And they can give you some really good tools at how to reprogram your brain. And whether that's an anxiety that that is triggered by something or if it's generalized anxiety, they can give you some things to do on the spot when you start to feel those anxious feelings and their symptoms that you say, aha, this is what's going on. I'm going to do something about it. So they can give you some tools and coach you through that. And you won't have to take any medication whatsoever. If you do that and it gets better or not, maybe not completely better or if, it, if it's not working for you, uh, at that point, there's a lot of medications out there. Now, there are two general types of medications. There's one that helps prevent anxiety, and a lot of these are some of our medications that are used to also treat depression, like the SSRIs is one, the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. Um, the other thing, there are some, a couple of other ones, too, that are specifically used for anxiety. And these you take every day. Like if, if a patient came to me and said, look, I've already gone to the psychologist to help me a little bit, but not completely. And still, two or three times a week, I'm having incapacitating um, um, symptoms that are interfering with my work. What can I do? At that point, I'd probably recommend one of these medications that you take every day. Uh, it u- usually takes doses that are much higher than the um, the depression doses um, to treat the anxiety. And it, you, it takes a while. It takes two to four weeks before you can start to see uh, an improvement. The other ones are short acting. And these we've, we've tended to drift away from a good bit. I do have some patients that take uh, shorter acting, the benzodiazepines are a big group. We know that that puts you at increased risk of addiction to those uh, just because you get so used to taking those every time you feel anxious. However, they can be very useful um, in treating when you have those symptoms that just overwhelm you. Then you can, you know, the, the goal would be to use those as sort of an emergency when you need them, not taking them necessarily every day, unless you that everything else has been tried and that's that's what fits you. But those are the two biggest things. But the, I can't overestimate the psychologist because they can. A lot of people think, well, that, there's no way that they're going to give me anything, any kind of tools to do this. They can. Uh, and that's what they're trained to do. Uh, that's what they'll try to tailor towards you uh, individually. So that's that's something that you can you can use to your to your benefit. This is Southern Remedy. We're going to take a short break, but lots of time left in the hour for you to call in. We want everybody to call in with your questions. That's right. I want to know what you're thinking, what kind of questions you have. The number to call is one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one 672 We'll be right back after this. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. This is Southern Remedy with Dr. Jimmy Stewart on MPB Think Radio. To take part in today's show with your questions or comments, call one 877 MPB ring. That's one 672 7464 or you can email the show remedy at mpbonline.org. Welcome back to Southern Remedy. I'm Dr. Jimmy in the Christmas spirit. That's right, holiday spirit this week and uh it's going to be here before you know it. Make sure you're planning everything out. Speaking of anxiety, that's a great way to avoid it is to make sure you got a plan um 
good quick way to increase that anxiety is to to ditch the plan and just uh, go it alone out there. The number to call this morning if you have a question is one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four, Or send an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. Let's go to Craig in Biloxi. Good morning, Craig. Hey, good morning. Yeah, I, I was wondering if you're familiar with the uh, automatic response when you splash water on your face. It can, it helps uh, your breathing and your and your uh, physiological response with that. Uh, I, I I read something when I, about heart trouble in that, and I was wondering if that would work with uh, anger and anxiety. Uh, it it possibly can, Craig. I, I'm I'm familiar with that. It's called a vasovagal response, and um, we've we've done this as one of the th- first things that they train us to do when we took care of patients, particularly in the hospital or the clinic, that's having something called SVT or supraventricular tachycardia. So that's a fast heart rate. And one of the ways you can uh, get rid of it, you can actually teach a patient how to do this. You don't have to splash water in your face. You can vasovagal, which is uh, basically you can bear down uh, in your abdominal muscles and sort of hold your breath. And that sends a signal to your to your heart to slow uh, your heart rate down. Uh, same thing with cold water or, you know, splashing on your face or, or if when you get scared, too, if you think about it, you get scared and you get that little sensation in your chest because your heart rate uh, decreases uh, ac- uh, acutely all of a sudden, and then you have it increasing right after that. So, yeah, that, that can – and that's some of the things that they do. So what you're doing is you're training your body to – in, in reaction to something that's going on anxious-wise, so like you said, anger, fear, uh, to give it a stimulus where you can control it. You know, you don't have to be some yogi in India that, uh, you know, uh, decreases their heart rate down into the 20s and their their heart rate down. Um, you can train yourself to do that, uh, to decrease your heart rate with a little bit of, of self-stimulation. Same kind of thing with anxiety. But you need to practice it, and you need to practice it with somebody who knows what they're doing. Uh, but, but a lot of people have been very successful in doing this. There's a response, you know, deep sea divers that uh, the ones that hold the record for free diving down when they actually train their their bodies to um, you know for their heart rate to decrease while they do that uh, so that they don't uh, expend the same amount of energy so that they can go deeper uh, deeper down. It's amazing what you can train the body to do if you if you practice it. Yeah, and how about holding your breath? I find like like when I'm watching a movie or something and I get apprehensive, I find that I'm holding my breath. And if I start breathing, I get rid of that bad feeling. Yeah, same kind of thing. So you're sort of resetting things. So when you hold your breath and bear down while you're doing it, uh, that's one of the things that triggers that vasovagal response and it decreases your heart rate. And then right after that, you know, you can, the same kind of thing while hiccups work. You know, while some people say, hey, hold your breath, count to 10, that kind of thing, that, that gets rid of them, uh, at least in some people. Uh, but what you're doing is you're changing the electrical stimulation to your heart to either slow it down or, or speed it up. But yeah, you can do all those things. And a psychologist can give you some of those techniques. It doesn't have to be that dramatic, though. It can be very simple. Simple things like focusing on one thing. Uh, uh, there'll be some sort of self uh, tapping your fingers together or tapping on your leg. There's different kinds of signs that you can do that. Uh, do that yeah, can I, sort of go ahead. Yeah, I used a stethoscope to. Uh, I had was having an anxiety attack, and I used a stethoscope to listen to my heartbeat, and and I just calmed immediately right down. Yeah, you can slow it down yourself. I used to do that. Uh, before a track meet, I uh, learned how to do that in high school and continued after that, that you can slow your heart rate down and relax within that moment just by taking your pulse. You don't even have to have a, a stethoscope. So, Yeah, I, yeah I, I tried it with a pulse. It didn't work, but it's yeah. a stethoscope got to my brain. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, everybody Everybody does something a little different that works for you. Well, thanks, Craig. That's just a validation of uh, if you have anxiety out there, there's different ways to deal with it than medication. Uh, certainly don't want to, uh, you know, some people do require medication to do that, but um, there are other ways to do that also. So thanks for calling, Craig. Let's go to Jim in Jackson. Good morning, Jim. Good morning. You just answered my question. I was going oh. to ask about how controlling your breathing can assist with controlling anxiety. 
Yeah, the two things we talked about there, one is changing the electrical stimulation. Well, we, we talked a lot about heartbeat, but it goes beyond that. So really, you're, you're refocusing the brain. When we do things over and over and over again, our brain uh, has different connections that it establishes, and those connections can help it deal with different situations. It's, what, it's the same kind of thing that gives us the ability to adapt to different situations and to learn over time what to expect. You know, if you think about it, there are certain professions that, by the nature of the profession, it puts you in a harm's way that can create anxiety. Firefighters, first responders, uh, policemen, uh, the military. And what do they do to prepare their recruits for that? They put them in situations little by little and train them what to do in every situation so that they know if I have this kind of situation, this is what I'm going to do step by step. And after a while, it becomes second nature. Same kind of thing with anxiety for generalized anxiety disorders. You're retraining your brain to do that. You know, if you think about driving, for instance, when you first learned to drive, you had to think about each little individual step. And now there's sometimes when I'm paying attention, but I certainly don't think about any of that. I don't think about, you know, uh, uh, removing my foot from the accelerator, hitting the brake appropriately, uh, putting on my turn signal, moving out of the lane. All those things become automatic. Uh, but you have to train over and over and over again, and you're basically doing the same kind of thing with anxiety. So that's why those kinds of things work. But a certain amount of anxiety can be of assistance in certain situations. Oh, absolutely. It's sort of that flight or fight response. It sort of gets you moving, gets you motivated to do things. Um, you know, if you talk to professional athletes, the ones, there's, there's a lot of them that do really well. And they say, I like the feeling I get, even though I might be terrified before a competition, because it gets me motivated and gets my body sort of uh, activated before that. So it's, it's only when it becomes incapacitating, if it's interfering with what you need to do on a regular basis, particularly if those thoughts are going over and over and over in your mind and it's sort of paralyzing you. But Jim, you're, you're right. I mean, they're there for a reason. Same thing with pain. Pain is good. If we didn't have pain, we'd burn ourselves. We'd cut ourselves and wouldn't know it. Um, it's just when it's, you know, it, it's out of line, uh, that's when it becomes a problem. Thank you very much. All right. Thanks for calling in, Jim. The number to call this morning, we've got plenty of time for you to call in with any kind of question. It had to be about anxiety. It can be about anything maybe that you're anxious about. Uh, maybe it's a secondary anxiety question. The number to call this morning is one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Let's go to Faye in Macomb. Good morning, Faye. Good morning. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm confused. Uh-oh, what's going on? I don't like taking a whole lot of medication. The only thing that was helping me was diazepam. But my doctor then changed me to uh, H-Y-D-R-O-X-Y-Z-I-N-E. Hydroxyzine, yeah. Yeah, so that's, that's a, so what were you taking that for before? Uh, relaxed, man. I wasn't taking uh, Dazepan. I got you. I used to take Dazepan, and I asked for Dazepan, but uh, he had called this in for me for my nerves. Yeah. Diazepam uh, is one of those benzodiazepines. So Valium, you know, is, is the, that's sort of in the same category. So uh, Xanax, Valium, they're, they're useful, but what we've learned is you can become addicted to those fairly easy even if you don't have any intention so you can sort of get hooked on those of, of using those so my suspicion is that your physician didn't want you to put you in that situation and was trying to do the best thing for you and that's why they they switched you to hydroxyzine now hydroxyzine is something totally different and it can calm you down i know a lot of people are it's very useful for them to take that it can also make you sleepy um, so it, it's useful at night to take for anxiety. Um, a lot of people take hydroxyzine for allergic conditions too. So if you, you know, have a lot of overlap with a couple of other things going on, sometimes you can use that one medication to treat several different things. Um, okay. uh, that's the pain will help me. I wasn't taking it every day. I only take it when I need it. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and that may be OK in some situations. My, my suspicion is your physician maybe was worried about 
you being on that, you know, for a long period of time. If if the hydroxycine is not working for you, I, I would say speak with them again about that. And there may be other medications out there that don't, you know, that they can try. There's there's not just one or two that work for anxiety. There's a ton of stuff out there. And there's something else I'm taking. I'm just uh, that takes it every morning. C I T A L O P R A M twenty milligrams. I'm supposed to take that every morning, but I started taking it around about the twelfth or the thirteenth, and I'm just too dry. I don't want to be a downer. Yeah, the, yeah, the citalopram is one of those other ones I talked about that you take every day to help prevent the anxiety. So that's. Uh, it's not really a downer or anything like that. It's 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 one that's that's meant to treat the anxiety. And like I said, it can take anywhere from four to six weeks before you see a complete response on it. And sometimes they even have to go up on the the dose of the medication. Although that sounds like it's sort of a good dose for you. But I've been sleepy. I got my Christmas dinner to cook. I, I been... The sleepiness is not is probably be, uh, because of the hydroxazine. It's not the citalopram. So you might want to. You don't have to take the hydroxazine all the time either. You could just you know skip a couple of them and cook that good meal. Oh, that's what I do with the uh, nerve pills. I yeah. don't take them every day, yeah. but I have to take the other one every morning. Right. Something making me. It's that hy- it's that hydroxyzine. It'll dry you out too. Stop that one, and then keep taking your citalopram. Keep taking that every morning. Right. Right. Cut off on the uh, nerve pills for a while. Correct. Yeah, I would do that. Yeah, I wonder why I'm so down. You know, so sleepy. I've been. Just- that that's it. That's that hydroxyzine. All right, Faye, that's that's what I would do. So uh good luck to you. You gotta cook that meal. Sounds like you got some plans there for the for the family. Oh so. yeah. All right. A lot to cook. Okay. Thanks for calling, Faye. The number this morning to call if you have a question about anything that's going on with you in your life that's uh, healthcare related, you can call us at one eight seven seven MPB ring. That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Let's go to Melba in Mobile, Alabama. Good morning, Melba. Good morning. I'll take my answer once I hang up. Sure. Um, I just had my blood work done, and it turned out really well because I was. Uh, Checking my cholesterol mm-hmm. because my cholesterol was 144, but um, my it was carbon monot- carbon dioxide mm-hmm. that was kind of high, and I wondered what would cause this to be high. Yep. So and that I, I'm going to take it off of the. I'm sure. Hang up. Sure. That's yeah. I, that's a common one too, and you know it's it's. Um, Nowadays, with labs, uh, you know, we have the ability to give those labs back to people. And on our system, you can uh, pretty much the next day or the same day, you can uh, access those labs. So uh, now the, the, the difficulty with that is sometimes you'll have lab values that will be just outside the normal range. And patients say, hey, what's going on with this? Why is it red flagged? A lot of times it will be in red or it will say high or low. And it, it, if you look at all of it, that's this is part of the science and, and art of looking at everything in total. Uh, everything doesn't have to be, and nor is it, always right in the normal range. The range is just that. And a lot of people live outside the normal range a little bit. So CO2 uh, is really, it's not carbon dioxide. It's, it measures something in the bloodstream that um, that is uh, a, a bicarb. So it's it's a little bit it, it's related to carbon dioxide, but it's a little bit different. So that's a measure of of acidity in the bloodstream. So uh, if it's high, it can be a little alkalotic. If it's low, it's acidotic. So and it's a balance. the The body does a really good job normally of keeping this in balance. It even when you eat different things. A lot of people have called in the past and said. Well, can I eat more acidic foods or basic foods to, to manipulate that? You really can't. If, if your kidneys are working okay, which is the main system that regulates that, uh, and your lungs are okay, 
then then those things happen just fine. Now, there are a couple of different conditions that might make that CO2 level a little bit higher on the blood work. One of those is if you're taking a diuretic, and that can be a normal thing. So, in, uh, you know, the cutoff on most people is somewhere around 25, 28. Uh, if, it's, if it's above that number, up around 30, 31 even, then it might be that you're taking, you know, a diuretic, uh, probably at the at the maximum dose or near the top of the dose. It doesn't mean that you necessarily needed to change that. That's not going to cause any problems long term. It's just a reflection of what's going on. Also, if you're fasting for a long period of time, particularly if you're not drinking in a lot of water, then you might have what's called a contraction alkalosis too. So that number may be uh, elevated. And then uh, another common thing, sleep apnea can do that. So sleep apnea, some lung disorders like COPD, uh, those all are things that can make that number go up. But you don't have to have any of those things. So that number can be a little bit elevated, one or two points. If it's one or two points above what the normal uh, range is there, I wouldn't worry about it one little bit. Uh, you know, people call back and say, hey, tell me more about the MCH on the CBC or the MCHC. Uh, you know, those are things that honestly, they don't mean a whole lot. If you're not anemic, uh, they don't, uh, they don't even look at them. If you're a hematologist, they're like, just ignore that. Uh, platelets can go up and down sometimes if it's just a little bit outside the normal range, that's probably okay. Uh, but ask your physician about it. That's, that's great. That's why we're here, but that's the reason why. Um, and, and bicarb is one of those, the CO2 is one of those that it's very common to be a little bit elevated in some people or a little bit low, uh, outside the normal range. So hope that helps. Um, you know, it's complex. Look, people go to medical school to, and, and beyond, uh, in residency, they go sometimes eight years to figure this stuff out and to be comfortable looking at it. Same thing with the EKG. Uh, but that's, that's the reason why, um, and I almost wish sometimes we just said, you know, this, these are the labs that you need to know. And these are the things that are in sort of in the background. Uh, but that's, that's what's going on. We've got time for a, a couple of more calls here. If you want to call us for any kind of question that you might have about your health care, you can reach us on Southern Remedy at one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Or you can send an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. Speaking of cholesterol, you just men- heard her mention about uh, normal cholesterol levels. Cholesterol has gotten a lot more complex based on the science that we know uh, to help prevent heart attack, stroke, and other uh, things that we call ASCVD. That's atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. So basically, these are a buildup of plaque inside blood vessels that affect different organs in the body, most notably the brain. That would be causing stroke or TIAs, the heart, heart attacks, heart failure, and then also the kidneys and the peripheral arteries. So people have peripheral arterial disease where they get cramps when they're walking uh, maybe down the road or up and up and down uh, stairs. We know that there are a lot of modifiable risk factors. Smoking is probably the most common one. Hey, give yourself a Christmas present if you're a smoker. Uh, stop smoking. There's plenty of really successful ways to do that. We know that nicotine replacement and other medications have been used successfully. Uh, We know a support system is very successful of doing that. Uh, There's even reminders you can put on your phone that help you do that. Uh, Talk to your physician about getting some help. It's free in a lot of different ways. Uh, So there's a lot of of things that uh, can, uh, if you say, hey, it's going to be expensive for me to do that, I guarantee it's probably going to be cheaper to stop smoking, particularly over the long haul, both in healthcare costs and in the money that you save with cigarettes. I mean, that's a really expensive habit. Uh, but that's the easiest thing you can do. But also cholesterol, it's not just the total cholesterol. Some people have total cholesterols in the 180s or even 200s, but it's the components of that. And it's not even a ratio. A lot of older labs are still giving you that ratio. And people will say, well, the ratio, speaking of things that are abnormal, uh, is a little bit high. So what do I do about that? Basically, we look at two things. Uh, we look at the LDL, and that's the, the type of cholesterol that's bad. I 
say, you know, the easiest way to remember that is L for lousy. So that's the lousy cholesterol. And then there's triglycerides, which are also bad, but not as much as the LDL. And then HDL, which is the good cholesterol, H for healthy. So you got your HDL, the higher it is, the better. So some people have extremely high HDLs in the 80s and 90s. Well, that makes their total cholesterol go higher. But their LDL, their lousy cholesterol, is really low. And that's what you want it. So we know if if you have a very low risk because of your age, uh, because you don't have things like diabetes, which increases your risk, uh, hypertension increases your risk, of heart attack or stroke, smoking increases your risk. All these things sort of play into that, and we plug you into a plug all those things into a little calculator and see what your total risk is. If it's low and your cholesterol is low and you're between the ages of 40 and 75, then you probably don't need to be on a cholesterol medication, in particular a statin. So that's resuvastatin, atorvastatin, anything that ends in statin. Uh, because those are medication-wise are the most proven things to decrease your risk of uh, of heart attack and stroke. But if your risk is high, you may need to be on one of those. And then there's this in-between land uh, where your cholesterol may not be that high, uh, but it's your total risk is high, or vice versa. That you have to have these discussions. And there's cholesterol uh, guidelines that just came out about oh six to eight weeks ago, and they were a little bit more. They gave you a little bit more leeway about calculating things as it relates to the uh, LDL number, and uh, that's important. We know that that's important, and a little bit more uh, evidence about what do you do if you're on a statin, but your LDL is still not less than 70, and it really needs to be low because you've already had a heart attack or a stroke. Uh, what do you do in that case? And uh, you can add other medications to that. So incredibly complex. Basically, having a discussion with your physician is the best way to do that uh, to try to prevent uh, a lot of that complication. Certainly don't want anybody to have a heart attack or a stroke. And the best way to prevent that, of course, is through healthy eating and exercise, particularly if you have a strong family history. Well, that's all the time we have for today. I want everybody to have a happy holiday season in the upcoming couple of weeks. Southern Remedy is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio and is funded in part by a grant from the University of Mississippi Medical Center and generous support from you, our listeners. Today's show was engineered by Jay White. Our call screener was Michelle McAdoo. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart. You can join us on Wednesdays at 11 for Southern Remedy and stay tuned for NPR's Here and Now coming up next on MPB Think Radio.